Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part two of the case of Julie Ann Gonzalez. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Last week, we went over the disappearance of Julie and the ever-changing details and climate of her case, including the timeline of her disappearance, which was narrowed down by George to between 10 and 11 a.m. While her disappearance was escalated to missing and endangered, police were consistent in saying there was no foul play suspected. The feelings surrounding George swayed back and forth between questioning his story and many in the public believing he was telling the truth. But all of that changed after an episode of Dr. Phil, when George failed that polygraph that he had consistently volunteered to take. And maybe it was the polygraph results, a break in the case, or something totally different. But on the same day that Dr. Phil episode aired, Austin police announced they were serving a search warrant on a house on Garden Oaks Drive, which is real close to that Walgreens where Julie's car was found abandoned. Reports stated that police weren't going to specify why the home was relevant to the case, but I of course will. I went ahead and looked up the street name and compared it to a report of George's residence history, and bingo bango, we have a match. George De La Cruz lived in a house on Garden Oaks Drive, a house that was less than half a mile, an eight-minute walk from that Walgreens. It was this small blue 940-square-foot rancher, which according to online records is a studio house with zero bedrooms and one and a half baths. That's nothing I've ever heard of before, but I looked at several different online listings and they all said the same thing. So interesting enough to put in here, but maybe not totally relevant. Because Julie's case was national news on two different levels, when news stations caught that this search warrant was happening, camera crews flocked to the scene. There, they caught footage of George standing around in a black t-shirt, almost looking amused at one point. Two black cars were towed, both of which were registered to relatives of George. According to KVUE, neighbors saw bags of evidence being removed from the home and the station posted one photo where it almost looks like they removed a painting or one of those big mirrors that sits in the back of a dresser. Maybe a really big portrait, who knows, but it was squarish and thin, but pretty big. Knowing for a fact that there was finally some kind of probable cause in Julie's case, there was hope that maybe George's iPhone and his computer would be seized and that they'd also be able to access Julie's MySpace account to find out which IP address her updates were being posted from and which towers her phones pinged off of when those text messages were sent to family and friends. If you're wondering if George finally decided to lawyer up, of course he did. I suppose his days of cooperation came to an end when that polygraph did not go as planned. With George on his throne as the husband-did-it king of the South, Julie Velez Mitchell did yet another episode on Julie's case. And as to be expected, George's attorney joined in. Naturally, the first thing his attorney addressed was that polygraph on Dr. Phil. He pointed out the obvious that polygraph results are not admissible in court. But then it went down a really dumb route. The attorney claimed that Dr. Phil was taking advantage of a kid. Kid being the key word here that I would like to take a minute to shit all over. 
This kid had all the time in the world for adult video games. He had a child, and from what I can tell, he finally had a job. This kid was calculated enough to leave notes for his estranged wife everywhere, and when she decided she wanted to leave him, this kid was calculated enough to drop a suicide note in a diaper bag, and then actually follow through with that threat. So let's scratch the kid thing here and acknowledge that he is a whole ass adult who just so happens to make really, really shitty decisions. I also want to point out that nobody forced George to take that polygraph test. In fact, he volunteered for it when speaking to JVM. Dr. Phil is just the one who took him up on his dumbass offer. Moving past that poorly executed starting point of that conversation, George's attorney came forward with something that would change the game a little bit and muddy the waters of the timeline we thought we knew. Instead of Julie being last seen at George's house between 10 and 11 a.m., the attorney claims that a neighbor of George's saw Julie at his house at around 2.30 p.m. the day she went missing. The neighbor also claims to have seen her with two unidentified males. That's a pretty distinctive change to the timeline. We're talking three and a half to four and a half hours. The difference between Julie going over to George's house alone for the first time and coming to his house with two unidentified males. George's attorney said police need to be focusing on identifying who those two males were. Because JVM is the badass she is, she called George's attorney out for the inconsistencies with his new story. She pointed out that George is the one who said over and over that he was the last person to see Julie. And I'm going to try and say this without laughing, but the attorney justified the change by saying, that's what George says publicly. It sounds to me like he is saying his client only implicates himself publicly. Hey, I'm innocent, but I'd like to appear suspicious as fuck on record. Okay, thanks, bye. If there is any actual indication that George was not the last person to see Julie, and he only talks about that in private, he is an idiot. The whole neighbor sighting started to gain traction, and the details started pouring in. According to KVUE, the neighbor claims to have seen Julie pull up at George's house and walk into his backyard with two Hispanic males. But according to a statement Julie's mom gave to JVM, when the males walked into the backyard, the dogs didn't bark and he had barky-ass dogs. The only time they wouldn't have reacted is if the dogs knew the people walking in the backyard. But according to George's attorney, those males were unidentified. Please transport me to the universe where George's dogs are familiar with the males, but he isn't. On June 24, 2010, the tides were a-changing when news broke that George's own mother had called the police. Why? Because apparently a few weeks back, she found a suspicious hole in the bottom of the backyard shed. According to KXAN, George's mom was so distraught with her find that police had to call an ambulance because her heart rate was dangerously high. According to the Austin American Statesman, she claimed that neither she nor George had ever seen the hole before, and she first noticed it on May 4th. 
Unfortunately, that statement contradicted George's claim that the hole had been there since they moved into the house. He even had a ready-made explanation for it, saying that the previous owners dug it due to plumbing issues. Interesting knowledge flex seeming to know about plumbing issues of the previous owners of his mother's house, knowledge his own mother didn't seem to have herself. George's story seems unlikely, though, when you consider the fact that his mother's ex-husband was the one who built the shed. And I'd venture to say that one of the first things you do when building a backyard structure is to make sure there's not a giant hole there. As if Julie's family hadn't been through enough, by the time July came around, they were fighting for their right to spend any time with their granddaughter Ava, the only thing they had left of their daughter, and it wound up being a grueling battle. As if anyone cares at this point, George started to claim that people were harassing him. And I'd love to be less petty about this, but I don't have it in me. He said that someone smashed his windshield with a brake disc, which is really specific. Did he see the brake disc? Was it left behind in the windshield? Because a brake disc is a car part where you actually have to take apart the wheel to even have access to the piece. If true, it sounds like it had to have been broken by someone who worked on cars and was just like, let me take apart this wheel, find a flat circle and throw it at this dude's windshield. According to KVUE, his attorney said that his car was parked in front of his house when brake disc gate happened and that he had also gotten emails and people driving past his house and that all of this started after a custody hearing with Julie's parents. And if you listen closely, you can hear the world's smallest violin. A month after the poor pitiful George attempt, Fox 7 reported on those search warrants from back in May. In them, the police officially named George as the prime suspect in Julie's disappearance, meaning police believed George is involved in whatever caused Julie to disappear. Fox 7 further reported that a latex glove and rope were found in one of the cars and that they had collected dirt from around one of the wheels. Inside the house, Fox 7 says police took swabs of something that might have been blood, as well as some clothing. One item specifically mentioned was a t-shirt with what might have been blood on it. I want to include here that search warrants generally detail what police are looking for and not what was found during the execution. This was a report on the warrant, but didn't include a copy of it. Nonetheless, their reporting was relevant to the research of this episode, so this is what their reporting detailed. The Fox 7 report also mentioned that police might have found items that George had purchased from Walmart using one of Julie's debit cards on the day she disappeared, which is brand new information. We knew someone bought the freaking Spiderwick Chronicles from Best Buy days after, but we're just finding out that on the day she disappeared, someone was using her debit card at Walmart, and that person is suspected to have been George. And it's not just some hunch they have, they have video. Video that shows a guy looking just like George, pushing a little girl in a cart who looks just like Ava. What did he buy? Games for his freaking Xbox, which tracks with his baby daddy living with his mama vibes. Along with the Xbox games, he also purchased some baby items, so yeah. George also went to two different McDonald's that day, also using Julie's card. McDonald's twice in one day also seems par for the course here. 
While all of this is obviously suspicious as fuck, the use of Julie's card also wrecked any timeline that had been established in this case. Even if Julie left on her own accord and said, hey, keep Ava for some extended period of time, what are the actual chances that the woman who was about to pay to have George officially served with divorce papers would hand over her card and tell him to go to the store, get an Xbox game, some stuff for the baby, and hell, hit up two McDonald's while you're at it. And if we're to believe the neighbor's account that at 2.30pm, Julie and two unidentified Hispanic males walked into George's backyard together, at what point does the debit card exchange take place? No matter which way you slice this situation, I cannot figure out how it translates into George getting her debit card and having free reign to buy fast food and video games with it. To further shit on this timeline, let's sprinkle in the detail that the Walmart purchase was made at 2.20pm, meaning that would have been 10 minutes prior to when the neighbor says he saw Julie. So if he had her debit card prior to the neighbor seeing her, you also have to believe that George and Julie had some kind of interaction earlier that day. George has never alluded to seeing her twice, so are we back to Julie coming over to his house between 10 and 11 a.m.? George was up shit creek without a single popsicle stick at this point, and it only got worse when KVUE reported that five warrants had been issued. Those warrants included the words abduction, murder, and homicide. Two of those three words would indicate that this is now a homicide investigation. KVUE also reported that one warrant stated police were looking for bone fragments and human tissue. They also reported that investigators found blood evidence indicating a violent trauma, along with Julie's phone, Julie's wallet, Julie's purse, and other belongings. I was able to confirm that they did find Julie's phone and wallet in George's house, but his attorney told JVM that no one actually found any hair or fibers which had been previously reported, that those were just things investigators were looking for. Knowing all of this, I want everyone to take a minute and try and imagine the debilitating fear Julie's family was living in at this point. Not only was all of this coming out about their daughter, their granddaughter was still living with this man. In August of 2010, George's attorney told CNN that George had a watertight alibi, and whether or not that's stronger than an airtight alibi has yet to be determined. He said that based on the time Julie disappeared and George's timeline for that day, he couldn't possibly have been involved. But which timeline is he referencing here? I don't know because there are two and neither of them make any sense when compared to the timestamps on George's use of Julie's credit card. But what the hell, why not add a third timeline into the mix? In yet another interview with JVM, his attorney claims that Julie showed up at George's house between 10.45 and 11 a.m. to ask him to keep Ava for the weekend. Unprepared for extra days, the attorney claims that George asked Julie if she could run by Walmart and get him some diapers and wipes since he didn't have any. The news story is that Julie told him she didn't have time, but instead gave him her debit and credit card and said she'd get it back from him that afternoon. Unfortunately, their attempt to try and explain the debit card debacle only screwed up a previous version of George's story. 
This new timeline indicated that Julie wasn't planning on being away for the entire weekend, that she planned on returning later that afternoon. I'd love to tell you that Julie's case progressed pretty quickly after this, but it didn't. Just a few days shy of the one-year anniversary of her disappearance, the Austin Police Department released a statement. It read, On March 27, 2010, Julie Ann Gonzalez was reported missing. Initially, it appeared that Julie's disappearance was voluntary based on text messages sent to Julie's family and friends from her cell phone. However, the length of time since Julie's last communication with family and other information uncovered causes concerns about Julie's welfare. While voluntary withdrawal cannot be conclusively eliminated as a possibility, it becomes more likely as each day passes without contact from Julie. And that doesn't seem to make a ton of sense, but it keeps going. A team of investigators from Austin Police Department Violent Crimes Command have been investigating this case. During the investigation, APD gathered information that led us to believe that her disappearance may not have been voluntary. On May 14, 2010, APD executed a search warrant at the residence of George De La Cruz, Julie's estranged husband. In that search warrant, detectives asked for numerous items of evidence that they believed would be found at the residence. While some items were seized that may be of evidentiary value, not all items sought were found at this time. George De La Cruz is considered a person of interest, and it is believed that he has information that could be of great assistance to the investigation. De La Cruz has been interviewed in the past, but is currently not cooperating with the investigation. In the best interest of this investigation, APD is unable to share additional information at this time. APD has been and continues to work diligently on this investigation. The investigation will not end until Julie's family has the answers it seeks about what has happened to her. APD appreciates the assistance we have received from national, local media, and tips from citizens. APD is grateful to the assistance of Julie's family and their tireless efforts to keep her information in the public forum. The department urges anyone with information about Julie's current whereabouts or the circumstances under which she disappeared to call the Austin Police Department's homicide tip line at 512-477-3588. In summary, George is under suspicion, he is not cooperating, and if you want to submit a tip, you are directed to call the Homicide Tip Line. When the official one-year anniversary passed, Julie's mom spoke to KXAN and said, This last year has been like if time stopped. And time stopped when we reported her missing. Because we didn't celebrate holidays, we didn't celebrate birthdays, we didn't celebrate Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, Thanksgiving. We didn't do any of that. It was just too hard for all of us. She added, we can't enjoy. It's hard to enjoy anything not knowing where your child is. Time ticked by at an agonizing pace, and by October 2nd, 2011, Julie's mom was back in court continuing her fight for visitation rights with Ava. According to the Austin American Statesman, at the hearing, George agreed to allow Julie's mom to see Ava, but only through January when they'd revisit all of this in court again. 
The entire year of 2011 seemed to be dedicated to Julie's family fighting for the bare minimum of access to their granddaughter, who was still living with the man suspected of having something to do with their daughter's disappearance. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. In March of 2012, the two-year anniversary of Julie's disappearance came and went, and Ava, who was now four, was still in the custody of her father. By April, Julie's family was back in court and were finally granted official regular visitation with Ava. It was only twice a month, but it was better than nothing, and at least at this point, it was a judge calling the shots and not George, who was somehow still a free man. March 26, 2013 marked the three-year anniversary of Julie's disappearance, and it seemed like police were no closer to solving her case or locating her than they were the day she disappeared. But six months later, all of that would change. On September 13, 2013, out of the leftist of fields, News broke that George had finally been indicted on charges of first-degree murder. Not only did prosecutors believe he was involved in Julie's disappearance, they suspected him of killing her. The word indicted is important when it comes to the news of George's charges, because his case was taken to the grand jury before charging him. Prosecutors wanted to make sure they had a strong enough case that the charges would stick, instead of taking their chance on a preliminary hearing and hoping for the best. It worked, and George was officially going to be tried on a no-body case. Now, you might think that a no-body case would be more of an uphill battle than a case where you do have a victim's body, but according to an article from A&E, 86% of no-body cases end in convictions, which is 16% higher than the conviction rate of homicides with a body. If I had to guess, it's because prosecutors know they're going to need a shit ton of evidence to not only prove a murder did occur, but that the person charged is the one responsible for it. So they wait to press charges until they have an unshakable case. It wasn't until April 13th, 2015, that George finally stood trial. The following trial information comes from the incredible live coverage from KXAN. 
Julie's boyfriend, Aaron, took the stand and testified that after leaving for work the morning Julie disappeared, he texted her throughout the day, but didn't get a response until around 2 p.m., 20 minutes before George's trip to Walmart. The text read, I can't do this anymore. And she told him she was going to be moving away to Colorado, which made absolutely no sense because the night before, they had been talking about what the rest of their lives would look like together, like getting their own place, having children, etc. We know that at least one text existed saying Julie was going with some guy named James to see his new house in Colorado and that he was going to show her a good time, but she never said she was moving to Colorado. And why would she? Her divorce wasn't final. She was about to pay to get this turd to finally have to sign his divorce papers, and she had a toddler. Her whole family lived there, and the job she had worked so hard for was in Austin, Texas. It seemed completely implausible that she, on a whim, was talking about uprooting her entire life to move to Colorado of all places. Immediately, Aaron didn't think it was Julie who was texting him, so he texted Julie's phone back and asked her to tell him what her middle name was. Assuming it's George who had her phone, you're probably like, oh, this isn't going to prove anything because her ex-husband would surely know her middle name, but do not be fooled. Instead, her response was, I don't feel like playing games. Aaron, more suspicious than ever, thought that something had happened to Julie, so he actually left work to check his apartment and see if she had taken all of her stuff with her. If she was really planning to move to Colorado, she'd probably take her belongings, but she hadn't taken a thing. Everything was still there, along with a detailed love letter to the man who was making her believe that true love did exist. The letter read in part, I can't express how much I love you, how happy I am to be with you. You make me smile all the time. You make me feel special and loved. She even added that she hoped they'd get married one day and add a baby boy to their family. In summary, there was not a chance in hell that she took the time to pen that letter, leave it for him, then ignore his text until 2 p.m., only to do a complete 180, change her mind, and say she was leaving to move to Colorado. The next person to testify was Julie's cousin. He said that George and Julie's relationship had become verbally abusive and somewhat physical, though her sister testified about a time where Julie and George got into an argument and Julie came out of her room with a red mark on her face saying George had slapped her. She said she'd also seen George yank Julie's arm and pull her towards him. So it sounds to me that any question of their volatile relationship becoming physical is out the window at this point. There is no question. According to her family's account of their relationship, it did get physical. Julie's cousin said that the day after Julie went missing, he went to George's house fully believing that he had something to do with her disappearance. When he got there, he says that George and his friends were in the backyard and judging by his follow-up statement, it looks like they were standing near that shed with the hole underneath it. He and other witnesses both testified to noticing those scratches on George's face. Following her cousin's testimony, Julie's manager at Walgreens took the stand and gave everyone a little more insight into just how controlling and obsessive George was. She testified that they would get complaints because George would be hanging out around the pharmacy. She said that he would call Julie so frequently that they actually had to ask him to leave. 
He was shadowing Julie at her job when they lived in the same house. The manager also recounted a time where Julie told her that George said, if I can't have you and Ava, nobody will. The neighbor who claimed to see Julie and those two unidentified Hispanic males at George's house at 2.30 p.m. the day she disappeared stated that he saw a man driving a gold vehicle pull into George's driveway, walk inside the house, walk out, and drive away. In this version, it's only one man and he's not walking into the backyard. Instead, the man is walking into George's house. We'd previously heard that George's dogs didn't bark at the two unidentified males, and in this version of events, it was just one guy who walked into the house. Both versions of that story, whoever it is or whoever they are, it seems pretty clear that they were familiar with George or at least his house and dogs. So the idea that either version includes anyone who is unidentified seems highly unlikely. The question is, who was it and what role did they play in this case? Also taking the stand in George's trial was a friend of Julie's who'd been told she was running off with a man named James in Colorado. But not just any James, a James who was a co-worker. The only problem with that story was that, according to the manager who testified earlier, George didn't work with anyone named James. Detectives testified about that hole under the shed in George's yard and said that it was less like a hole and more like a trench. It was four feet wide, two feet deep, and was covered by a piece of plywood which appeared to have sawdust on it, indicating that that piece of wood might have recently been cut. George's mom told police she'd never seen the hole before, whereas George said it was there when they moved in. The sawdust indicated that it had been recently covered up, whereas the pile of dirt behind the shed indicated it had recently been dug. To solidify that the hole had been dug right around the time Julie disappeared was a call to AT&T about disrupted service at 9.46 a.m. on the day Julie disappeared. Upon further inspection, the disrupted service was due to a damaged underground cable in George's backyard under that shed. The damage had been done with a shovel. A sergeant took the stand and testified that a knife was found on a picnic table in the backyard and ammunition was found in that shed. They also found remnants of a purple shoelace, which indicated that a fire might have been used to burn clothing. I would love to tell you that we know Julie had purple shoelaces, but it didn't come across anything confirming that. We also don't know what any results from the testing of that knife or ammunition were. The next topic covered in George's trial was the digital evidence recovered. It revealed that five days after Julie disappeared, her MySpace account was logged into seven minutes before George's was logged into. That could be chalked up to coincidence if it wasn't for the fact that they were both logged into using the same IP address. A wireless expert went on to testify that in the six months prior to Julie's disappearance, her phone showed that she would arrive at George's home, pick up Ava, and leave within minutes. But on the day she disappeared, her phone remained at his house for hours. After 10.50 a.m. on the day she disappeared, she got 27 phone calls. 22 of those calls came in while her phone was in the vicinity of George's house. 
Continuing on with the cell phone information, the day after Julie's disappearance, her phone pinged off of a tower it had never pinged off of before. George's phone also happened to ping off of that same tower. That tower just so happened to cover one of George's friend's apartments, an apartment whose Wi-Fi they believe George used to access Julie's MySpace account. If reasonable doubt hadn't been flushed yet, this is where it circled the drain. Though I do think we have a lot of unanswered questions about George's friends. The friends who were with him by the shed when Julie's cousin showed up at his house the day after she disappeared, and the man or men who may or may not have gone into George's backyard or house the day she disappeared. The last two bits of information from this trial don't really fit in order, so I'm just going to throw them in here. On the day Julie disappeared, there was unusual activity in the gaming fiend life of George De La Cruz. For hours that day, his Xbox sat in dashboard mode. The fact that he did not play video games for hours at a time was an unusual occurrence in his gaming schedule. Of course, he did still play that day, he just took some time off. There was also an inmate who was in jail with George who testified that George cried while recounting an altercation between him and Julie. It doesn't look like there's a date or time associated with this story, but it was relevant enough to be admitted into evidence at this trial. The inmate claims that George said that he and Julie got into an argument about her having feelings for another man. Enter motive. The inmate said that George told him Julie fell and hit her head, leaving her unconscious and bleeding on the floor. George told him that Julie tried to call for help, but George stopped her. KVUE reported an exact quote from the trial of the inmate's testimony, which read, I know she tried to leave at one point and he tried to stop her and I mean, things got physical. I know they had a fight basically. Adding, at one point they fell and she hit her head. I don't remember what he said, table or counter. I think he said counter or something. I know she became unconscious, that she was knocked out, and I know he freaked out. He didn't know what to do. George's trial came to an end on April 22nd. In closing arguments, the defense told the jury, there is no evidence you have before you in this trial that you know Julie Ann is deceased. You convict based on facts, not feelings. You convict based on facts, not fantasy. You convict on logic, not emotion. Adding, hell, she could have been abducted by aliens. I don't know. And frankly, I only added this part to the episode because it's so offensively stupid. I cannot imagine a world where he thought that comment would do anything but make the jury question his entire argument. The jury was sent out for deliberations at 11 a.m. and less than seven hours later, they came back with a verdict. George De La Cruz was found guilty of murdering his estranged wife, Julie Ann Gonzalez. Julie's family was happy he was finally being held accountable, but they still wanted to know where Julie was. According to KVUE, prosecutors were anything but hopeful that he would ever reveal that information. In a victim impact statement recorded by KVUE, Julie's uncle said, I can't stand the sight of you. You have hurt us. You put us through hell. If I had more time to tell you how much I hate you, I would. He thanked everyone who had supported their family throughout the years before ending with, George, we will not be thinking about you. We no longer have you in our lives. George was ultimately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
To this day, Julie's body has never been found. Her mother posted in April of this year saying, grief is like living two lives, one where you pretend everything is okay and the other where your heart screams silently in pain. Earlier this year, Julie's mother's house caught on fire. And while thankfully everyone, including the animals, were able to get out, the entire home was a loss. The only thing her mother was able to grab from the house before running out was a Mother's Day card that Julie had given her. Julie's family deserves to know where she is. Julie deserves a final resting place where she has some semblance of peace, and her family deserves a place to visit her. If you know anything about Julie's disappearance or where her body might be, please contact the Austin Police Department at 512-974-5000. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Julie's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. And to get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We're officially at the end of this episode, and it is time to share a view that made my whole day because you're awesome and you deserve all the thanks in the world. This one is from Shy, and I hope I pronounced that right, and says, Honestly, summing up my love for true crime is impossible. I looked forever to find the perfect podcast and finally ended up here. Heather is probably my favorite person. You're my favorite person. Not only does she give unbiased facts, she gets straight to the point. All of her small commentary makes me giggle because it's always exactly what I'm thinking or doing at that point in time. If you need a good podcast, look no further. I've listened to all of these probably 30 times at this point. Shai, you're my favorite person of the day, and I love you and appreciate you more than you know. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to do something that made mine. I will talk to you guys next week. I love you. Bye.